I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Global temperatures have broken records this month. Is the human body capable of withstanding such heat challenges? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Dr. Kari Nadeau is the Interim Director of Sea Change, the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment in the T.H. Chan School of Public Health at Harvard University. She'll tell us how heat affects the human body. What's the difference between heat exhaustion and heat stroke, and why does it matter? We'll also talk with a Mayo Clinic pharmacist about the effects of medications on our ability to handle heat. Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, how heat challenges human health and what we can do about it. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. Americans are getting mixed messages about the state of COVID-19 infections. On the one hand, we've been told that the pandemic is over and we can let down our guard. As evidence, some commentators point to the fact that we're no longer seeing excess deaths due to COVID in the U.S. On the other hand, there are several troubling signs that we may not have seen the end of this epidemic. Wastewater in some places contains evidence of SARS-CoV-2 virus. This is particularly noticeable in the West and the South, where emergency room visits are also increasing. Where we have data on positive test results, those too are rising bit by bit. In most cases, however, we don't have much information on test results. Most people who are testing do so in the privacy of their own homes, and there's no central authority collecting that information. Other worrisome signs are international. Right now, hospitals in Okinawa, Japan, are overwhelmed with more cases of COVID-19 than during the peak of the eighth wave. A new variant has also cropped up in the Dominican Republic, but it's too early to say whether this will become a threat elsewhere. Epidemiologists estimate that hospitalizations and deaths in the U.S. will resemble the statistics last year. This could mean as few as 55,000 people die of COVID-19 this year in the U.S., or as many as 450,000 deaths. We may not need to be wearing masks every time we venture outside, but we probably shouldn't throw them all away just yet. A new study from Johns Hopkins reports that diagnostic errors are killing or disabling a shocking number of Americans each year. The researchers analyzed data from more than 20 million hospital records. They calculate that 795,000 patients are harmed by misdiagnosis each year. That includes 371,000 deaths and 424,000 permanent disabilities. Overall, doctors made an incorrect diagnosis 11% of the time. In other words, one out of every 10 patients was not diagnosed correctly. The top five conditions that are misdiagnosed are stroke, sepsis, pneumonia, blood clots in the legs or lungs, and lung cancer. According to the lead author, Dr. David Newman-Toker, diagnostic errors are, by a wide margin, the most under-resourced public health crisis we face. 
Hearing loss has been associated with an increased risk for cognitive decline among older adults. What's been unclear until now is whether hearing aids would make a difference. A randomized controlled trial published in The Lancet this week shows that people at especially high risk for dementia benefit significantly if they get hearing aids. The investigators randomly assigned 487 older people with untreated hearing loss to a control group that received health education. In addition, they assigned 490 people with hearing problems to have them corrected with hearing aids. At the end of three years, people at the highest risk for cognitive decline had 48% less impairment if they wore hearing aids. Scientists have noticed that active people seem less vulnerable to dementia. Can people reduce their risk for cognitive decline just by exercising? A randomized controlled trial compared combined vigorous aerobic and resistance training to gentle balance exercises. In addition, participants did computerized cognitive training or sham training on the computer and took vitamin D or placebo pills. The group doing exercise plus computerized training performed significantly better on cognitive test scores after six months. It's way too hot, not just in the U.S., but across Europe as well. The temperature in Rome this week was 107 degrees. Temperatures were also dangerously high in Athens, leading authorities there to close the Acropolis. Many countries in Europe don't have air conditioning. In the Middle East, the heat index was over 150 degrees, which is not compatible with human life. Death Valley in the U.S. recorded a near record of 128 degrees, and people in Florida can't even cool off by getting into the ocean. Water temperatures there have been close to 100 degrees. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. People are complaining about the heat from Europe and the Middle East to Phoenix, Arizona and Death Valley, California. Globally, we have recently experienced the hottest days in modern history. To give you some sense of the extreme temperatures, here are some highs from the past week. Beijing has had nearly a month of temperatures above 95 degrees Fahrenheit. Sanbao in northwest China broke global records at 126 degrees. Off the coast of Italy, Sardinia and Sicily are expected to break the European heat record of nearly 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Many countries are not used to such heat, and air conditioning is an uncommon luxury. People have to rely on evaporative cooling. That means sweating. But when humidity is high, that doesn't work very well. The heat index takes humidity into account. In the Persian Gulf last week, the heat index was over 150 degrees. Humans can't survive that kind of stress for very long. Another way to cool off is to go swimming. But in the Florida Keys, the water has reached nearly 100 degrees. You can't cool off very well when the water feels like a hot tub. How does such heat affect human health? To find out, we are turning to Dr. Carrie Nadeau. She is the Interim Director 
of the Center for Climate Health and the Global Environment, John Rock Professor of Climate and Population Studies, and Chair of the Department of Environmental Health at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Kari Nadeau. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be back here again. Dr. Nadeau, we are speaking to you from pretty far away. You are in Davos, Switzerland. Is that right? Yes. I'm here for a conference on how the immune system is affected by climate change. Well, how appropriate. No, we keep breaking records for heat. I, I think the world's hottest day was back on July 3rd. By instrumental reading, it was 62 degrees 0.6 Fahrenheit. Now, a lot of people are going to say, well, 62.6, that doesn't sound so hot, but that's worldwide. That's including places where it's winter. Exactly. So why should we be concerned about heat-related illness? I am very glad you're doing this show today because it is critical that we talk about heat-related illness. In the past seven years, there have been the hottest days on record. And in the past 20 years, we've seen an over 50% increase in heat-related mortality in people greater than 65 years of age. So this is real. It's now. It's increasing. And one-third of all global warm season heat-related deaths are attributed to climate change. So I'm glad we're talking now. With the warmth and the rise in heat that many of your listeners have been feeling, and over time there's variation, but importantly when we look at the overall data from the whole globe, as you mentioned, the globe is warming and there will be more heat stress days. And what does that mean? Well, unfortunately, if we take the current business as usual procedures and even given some of the changes that have occurred right now in using renewable energy, we're set to have a temperature rise around the globe of an average, this is average, there could be variations in this, but an average of 2.8 degrees centigrade or 5 degrees Fahrenheit by 2100. And that's coming soon enough. And unfortunately, we're only at a 1 degree centigrade rise right now. So if you think about the heat events that we've already had in the world, and knowing that if we don't do something about it, there could be a five degree Fahrenheit increase over the next couple of years. We need to be talking about this and talking about it now. So thank you. Dr. Nadeau, we're talking about heat-related deaths. And I'm wondering, well, what is it about heat that kills people? Yeah, unfortunately, it's a series of unfortunate situations. But the human body can only tolerate a certain amount of temperature that's high. And that means about 95 degrees Fahrenheit or 40 degrees centigrade is at a level where we cannot live outside of a few hours in that type of temperature. And why is that? Well, our bodies weren't meant to be higher than our own core temperature. Our core temperature is about 37 degrees centigrade or 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. And when it gets higher than that outside, our body tries to react and it sets up alarms. And the first alarm is to sweat. And in certain people, like people that are 
older or babies or pregnant women or people that are already having difficulty sweating or maintaining their temperatures, that's hard to do. And even after a few hours, if the core temperature rises to 40 degrees centigrade, you start seeing muscle breakdown, you start seeing your mental status change, you start seeing, unfortunately, the blood vessels and the gut lining breaking down, so that after a certain amount of time, the body cannot handle that amount of heat, and so you can die. And unfortunately, what we call that in medical terms is a staged approach from mild to moderate to severe, from let's say a heat rash to something that is very mild to a heat exhaustion where you might be out exercising in hot weather, 85 degrees Fahrenheit or more, and you start sweating, you start getting dizzy, you start getting blood pressure changes. But at that point, it's called heat exhaustion. You can still try to go see a doctor and cool yourself at that point. But the next stage, if you don't take care of yourself, or you're in a situation where you can't change the temperature outside of your house or the environment that you live in, that's called heat stroke. And the difference between heat exhaustion and heat stroke is that you start to have mental status changes. You start to not be able to think straight. And because of that, people can't take care of themselves and they can die. And there's an 80% chance of dying with heat stroke with the elderly and a 30% chance of dying with heat stroke for athletes that are exercising outside in hot weather, like over 40 degrees centigrade. Dr. Nadeau, I remember maybe 20, 30 years ago, we were in Phoenix in the summer and it might've been around a hundred degrees. So it was really hot, but it wasn't that uncomfortable because it was so dry. We live in North Carolina where in the summer, mid eighties, 90, because of the humidity, it feels unbearable. I'm suspecting that people who live in hot, dry climates may not always realize that they're beginning to experience heat exhaustion and may not always take action as soon as they should, whereas people who live in a hot, humid environment know because their body is sweating so profusely that they're getting into trouble. Am I making that up? You are spot on. It's important, this concept of humidity plus temperature. We call that the heat index, and a bunch of scientists uh, decided to call it the wet bulb temperature, the degree by which our bodies can't go past a certain temperature outside with the given humidity. And why is humidity tough on our bodies? Well, as we try to sweat, if there's wind and dry air, it's much easier to evaporate that sweat from our skin and cool down. But in humidity, it's much less likely to be easy to sweat and release the air because oftentimes with humid environments, you have less wind. And because of that, you are cooling less. And so this wet bulb temperature concept or heat index is something that's very critical 
So for example, in Phoenix, it can be over 100 degrees Fahrenheit and people can be outside for a few minutes and be okay, but I wouldn't suggest exercising. Whereas in other areas like India, where last April 2022, it hit over 113 Fahrenheit and that's 45 degrees centigrade and it was humid, that caused many people to die. Uh, you'll remember in 2003, where I am right now in Switzerland and Europe, there was a heat wave which cost about 20,000 lives uh, because of the humidity plus temperature rises of over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. So knowing your humidity and knowing the temperature outside are two very important areas that we need to study more, but that need to be communicated and monitored to people. Now, the World Meteorological Association considers heat stress as five degrees higher than your average temperature for five days in a row. Now, that's going to be hard to define that as we have a warming environment in which there's a sliding scale. So I think to human physiology, to understanding the human body and its threshold, we really can't be outside at 85 degree Fahrenheit or more exercising, for example. We know that athletes have died, unfortunately, due to heat stroke, even those that are really well-conditioned. Furthermore, people with diseases like diabetes, asthma, hypertension, or high blood pressure, or other diseases like a risk of heart attacks, they're even more prone to getting heat exhaustion and heat stroke because of their underlying disease. And then finally, I want to make sure your listeners know that if you're on certain medications that decrease your ability to sweat or decrease your ability to combat heat exhaustion, that will also worsen your risks for heat exhaustion and stroke. You're listening to Dr. Kari Nadeau. She's the Interim Director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment, John Rock Professor of Climate and Population Studies, and Chair of the Department of Environmental Health at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. After the break, learn about the symptoms of heat exhaustion and heat stroke. We're supposed to drink plenty of water to stay hydrated when it's hot, but can you overdo that? Should we be concerned about climate change making heat worse? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of the most proven and concentrated flavanol extract in the market today, CocoPro, cocoa extract. It's officially summer, and that means you have more time to spend outdoors being active and creating lifelong memories. Whether you're looking to support your heart health or your brain health this summer, you can achieve your goals with Cocovia. All Cocovia supplements contain the number one proven source of flavanols, CocoPro, backed by 20 years of research. These powerful bioactive nutrients are clinically proven to promote cardiovascular health and improve cognitive function as you age. Get 15% off all Cocovia products from July 17th through July 31st using the discount code SUMMERPOD 
at cocovia.com. That's summer, P-O-D, summerpod at cocovia.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. Cocoflavanols could help contribute to a strong heart and enhanced cognitive function this summer. How can Cocovia be part of your supplemental routine to keep your brain and heart healthy? More information at cocovia.com. Today our topic is heat-related illness. No doubt you've noticed that it's much too hot for comfort. How does that affect our health? What symptoms signal trouble? We'll find out who may be most vulnerable to heat stress and how to protect ourselves. Later, we'll also hear from a Mayo Clinic pharmacist about medications that can make it harder to regulate our body temperature when the weather gets too warm. We're talking with Dr. Kari Nadeau. She is the Interim Director of the Center for Climate, Health, and Global Environment, John Rock Professor of Climate and Population Studies, and Chair of the Department of Environmental Health at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. She treats allergy and asthma in adults and children. Dr. Nadeau received her MD and PhD from Harvard Medical School. She's authored more than 400 scientific papers, many about health and climate change. Dr. Nadeau, I wonder if you could uh, remind us, please, of the symptoms of heat exhaustion and heat stroke. I think a lot of people use these terms interchangeably, and they're actually not interchangeable. Is that correct? That's correct. There, there's, it's a staged definition. So let me start with some of the mild aspects of when you're outside and you're exposed to heat, anything greater than 85 degrees Fahrenheit, I would start being careful. And you or your family might be out and other people might be out saying it's not a problem, but please be careful of these mild symptoms because they can turn into moderate to severe symptoms relatively quickly. So the mild illness that we consider as part of a heat-related illness are something we call heat syncope, which is basically a brief loss of consciousness. Uh, if you get exposed to heat, that's typical on the soccer field, for example, if someone's out playing and they just get a little bit of dizzy. But that we call mild because they can drink water, they can cool down, and then their body can compensate right away. Another mild symptom is heat edema. That's where you might have swelling of the limbs and it's just a, a slight swelling. People might notice it when they put on their sneakers and it's hot outside. It might be harder to tie your shoes. And that is very minimum. Another type are heat cramps where you might get some muscle spasms because of the heat and the sweating and physical exertion, for example, after exercising. But again, those can be reversed by going into a cool room, by drinking cool water. Finally, another mild symptom is heat rash. Oftentimes, people get rashes when it's hot outside, and that can be on different parts of your body, especially if you're wearing clothes that are irritating your skin. And there are ways to reverse all of those mild symptoms by 
going in the shade, by going into a room that's cool, by drinking cold water, by making sure that you and your family member seek uh, help if you otherwise don't receive it for being able to reverse your symptoms. The next stage is called moderate symptoms, and that we call heat exhaustion. And that is some person typically that is either elderly or is an athlete playing outside in a hot area, or perhaps a child, uh, an infant. They're more prone to heat exhaustion as well, pregnant women as well. They can see their bodies becoming weak. They get nauseous. They start having headaches or dizziness. They can have profound fatigue. And that results in a decrease in their body water content if they don't start drinking and rehydrating. And they start depleting salt, for example, if they're trying to sweat to compensate for a high temperature. And this usually happens while your body temperature is increasing. So you're going to about 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit to over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And you'd say, well, that happens a lot when someone has a fever. But a fever is very different. We modulate our bodies. We regulate our fevers very differently than when it's very hot outside. So your heat exhaustion can start. That can be within a matter of minutes to hours after being outside in a hot environment. Your body core starts rising. And then if you haven't taken care of yourself or your family members at that time, you can move quickly into heat stroke. And that's the most severe form of heat-related illnesses. And those symptoms occur when you have a mental status change, you have dizziness, you don't know what the person's name is nearby you, or you don't know what time of day it is. That's what we call mental status changes. It often can occur in healthy people that have extreme physical exertion or exercise, it can result in a lot of sweating, but then at some point the sweating stops and then your heart can also stop. And that's where the heat stroke can become deadly. And this is where your core temperature rises above 40 degrees centigrade. So it can happen over hours. It can happen very quickly if you don't get taken care of in an emergency room. Classic heat stroke usually happens more often in people that are elderly, in people that are vulnerable populations like those in urban cities that don't have access to air conditioning. Cities can oftentimes be 10 degrees hotter than other places. So knowing who these at-risk people are, vulnerable communities, people with um, who live in red zoning, what we call people that have environmental justice issues that are already in a place where they can't get access to health care. Uh, pregnant women and children are also at a high risk of heat stroke. Now, Dr. Nadeau, you talked about getting hydrated, getting enough fluids. And I think people need to be aware of a, I'd say a, a, a somewhat rare, but potentially deadly situation. We had a, a friend who went to Florida to run in a, um, a marathon, and this person was drinking a lot of water. I mean, a lot of water, because there were places all along the route where you could drink water. And at the end of the race, this person drank more water and then basically collapsed and collapsed with a condition called hyponatremia. 
Can you explain what that is and why it's so dangerous? Thanks for bringing that up. You know, when we say rehydration, I mean to drink water, but water with what we call electrolytes, with a little bit of sugar and salt. And why is that important? Because you're trying to make sure that your blood volume stays intact. We're trying to make sure that the blood that your heart pumps can get to all the areas of the body, especially the skin, so that you can start releasing and evaporating that heat that is accumulating in your body. So your friend, unfortunately, a lot of people that race and exert uh, professionally in sports or, or in any sport activity, they forget that they have to drink electrolytes with their water, not just water alone. Because if you drink water alone, it dilutes your bloodstream. It dilutes those very same things that you need to survive. So it can be dangerous to only drink just water when you're rehydrating. The other thing that people can do if you are getting too hot is get yourself in ice water. Put a fan on if you don't have air conditioning and put ice water as a bowl underneath the fan. And that will, a fan can reduce the temperature in the room by about seven degrees Fahrenheit very quickly. So, all of these things help rehydrating with electrolyte fluids, also using a fan with cold bucket of water underneath so that that lets you have nice cool air on your body if you don't have an air conditioner. And then also making sure that you get into the shade if you can't go inside. And importantly, wearing clothing that is not constrictive or that doesn't cause you to reduce your sweating. So all of these things can happen. But importantly, if you're exercising, you should stop exercising as well so that you don't generate as much heat. But I'm glad you bring that up because there are many ways to help with reducing the chances of having heat exhaustion and heat stroke. And a lot of them can be individual health related. I, I remember when, um, when I was a kid, people would take salt pills in the, in the summer because uh, they were concerned about losing sodium. Yeah. And, you know, so they would drink a lot of water and then they'd take a salt pill. Well, salt pills have apparently pretty much disappeared because salt has become our public health enemy number one. You're supposed to restrict your consumption of sodium. But as we've pointed out, too little sodium can lead to very serious consequences if you're drinking a lot of water. I'd like to switch over to the mental health or cognitive aspects of heat exhaustion, because I think a lot of people don't appreciate how important that we'll call it red flag, is that something bad is happening. What's actually going on in the brain when people can't identify the person next to them or they're confused about the time of day or what's happening to them? What's going on? Yeah, it's a great question because our bodies literally were not meant to be too hot. We can deal with cold. We could put layers and layers of clothing on. We weren't meant to be too cold either, but if we go to a, an environment which is too hot, over 40 degrees centigrade, or that is even more humid, then we have to be careful because our vessels literally start breaking down. The proteins in our body start becoming cooked like you cook an egg. When you take a raw egg and you put it on a frying pan, that egg turns a different color. And oftentimes the proteins in our own body, and our body is made of a lot of proteins, 
they start to what we call unfold, where they fold in different directions. And then the lining of our vessels, our blood vessels, and our gut, it starts breaking down. So we start to release fluid in places that were not meant to be. And our brains are covered by a beautiful skull, but that means we don't have a lot of place when we start to lose water in our brain and around our brain. Unfortunately, that swelling is in a contained area and we start getting headaches and it starts leading our brain not to be able to function because it's in a constricted space compared to our other parts of our body that can swell, but that aren't in such a constricted space. So heat stroke and heat exhaustion affects all organs, all parts of the body, but it's the brain that's affected most with swelling. And if you have mental status changes, and if you are are already someone who's elderly or stressed, and you're not able to think as clearly as you should be, heat stroke is yet another high risk for you. And then with those mental status changes, you might not be able to know to get yourself to the emergency room. Dr. Nadeau, you've highlighted the risk for athletes and the elderly, and I'm wondering if there, and and you've talked also about uh, the danger for pregnant people. I'm wondering if there are other conditions, specifically, what about people with diabetes? Are they more susceptible to problems with heat? Yes, it's a very good question. Children, infants, those people that are obese, they have a higher chance of having heat exhaustion and heat stroke. And in addition to that, people that have diabetes, have asthma, have kidney disease, and have cardiovascular disease that already, if they've had heart attacks, for example, there's a higher rate of having any of those existing diseases get worse with exposure to high heat. So people with those diseases should be very careful and be monitoring uh, the report and the meteorological weather reports uh, as fast as they can. Dr. Nadeau, I think the whole issue of climate change has been politicized, and uh, there are people who say it's not happening, don't worry, but because you are at the human end of this spectrum, you obviously are concerned about it you know, public health as well as for individuals i i wonder if you could just help us understand why we should be so concerned about a the big picture and b perhaps you can give us a personal cooling plan so that um as we are all exposed to higher temperatures in the summer what we should be doing to protect ourselves, whether we are highly susceptible or not. Sure. Well, climate change is real. Uh, hundreds of scientists have come together and written an IPCC report and have said we're on red alert right now. So we absolutely can reverse this. And what I find as uh, a cautious optimist is the fact that we have the technology and we have the money to be able to reverse this, to go to net zero by 2050 so that our temperatures don't continue to rise. So I'm glad that as a human species, we can be the difference now because not only are we affected by heat as a species, but also plants, animals, and that if alone someone knows what it's like to suffer 
in heat stress, then they should also think about what it is causing the planets to do. And plants decrease their growth. Animals have reduced um, organs. There are many different symptoms that we appreciate when we have heat stress. But I want to really emphasize that this is a planetary issue, that climate change is affecting all of us. It's due a lot to greenhouse gases and air pollution is one of the main causes of that greenhouse gas emission. So I hope that your listeners will also be the change, not only take personal advice for how they can cool their bodies, but also from a public health framework, make sure that our alert systems, our hospitals are ready, because we will see more and more days that are over temperatures that are not safe for humans. On my own personal side for cooling, uh, what I try to do is, number one, avoid uh, very hot days outside. So to stay in a cool place with shade. But if I am walking outside or if I do have to exercise outside, I will make sure that I carry cold electrolyte solution that is water with salt and sugar. I'll also make sure that I wear clothing that's not too constrictive, that uh, allows me to sweat. I also make sure that I have a place to know where to go to that is cool. Now, oftentimes people don't have a cooling room or don't have air conditioning. And for those people that have to be outside, like occupational workers that have to work out in the field, I hope that our public health departments across the U.S. will provide them with cooling rooms and fans and cold water to immerse their body into to keep cool. These are all things that I do personally, but that I also hope are available to many others across the U.S. as we see these temperatures rise, not just in the U.S., but around the globe. You're listening to Dr. Kari Nadeau. She's the Interim Director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment, John Rock Professor of Climate and Population Studies, and Chair of the Department of Environmental Health at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. She treats allergy and asthma in adults and children. Dr. Nadeau has authored more than 400 scientific papers, many about health and climate change. After the break, we'll find out what public health experts recommend to protect us from the heat. Perhaps we need heat alerts patterned on air quality alerts. They might be just as important. We'll also hear from a pharmacist about medicines that may increase our risk of problems with heat. Could your blood pressure pill become a problem? Some medications may sensitize the skin so it burns more easily. How can you learn if you're taking one? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs.com.
Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. Cocoflavanols can help contribute to a strong heart and enhance cognitive function this summer. How can Cocovia be part of your supplement routine to keep your brain and heart healthy? More information at cocovia.com. Over the last several weeks, we've been experiencing periodic air quality alerts because of the smoke from Canadian wildfires. Exercising or even just going outside can be dangerous, partly because of the heat, but also because of the poor air quality. People with asthma and other pulmonary problems may be at especially high risk because of particulates in the air, along with the high temperatures. Should public health authorities be issuing heat alerts, just like air quality alerts? Our guest is Dr. Kari Nadeau, Interim Director of the Center for Climate Health and the Global Environment, John Rock Professor of Climate and Population Studies and Chair of the Department of Environmental Health at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Dr. Nadeau, you're at the Harvard School of Public Health. So, public health, that's that's your bag. Are there things that public health experts are thinking about doing for heat that we should all be aware of? That's a great question. I think that we've talked a lot about individual health responses, which is important. And public health is all around us, from the water that we drink to alerting us when pollution is too high in the air. But in terms of heat waves, many people are gathering together to thinking about naming heat waves so that people are aware of when heat gets too high to be careful of going outside, for example. And I think one of those public health uh, benefits that we all really uh, receive a lot of help from is alert systems via the weather service or via our local public health department when there's an outbreak of some water contamination, for example. Or we're warned about smoke because we've, we've had a fair number of uh, forest fires in Canada and the smoke has wafted down as far as where we are, which is North Carolina. But um, yes. you know the smoke alerts, the pollen alerts, yes. the smog alerts. So yeah, maybe we need to have heat alerts. Yes, exactly. So many public health departments are putting together a structure for defining what they would consider high heat. And you can imagine a heat event in India might have different criteria than a heat event in New York City. So everyone's trying to get on the same page, but naming a heat wave might be important. Uh, the other important aspect is public health is all around you. It's there to protect you. And we're really grateful for our public health monitoring systems. New York City, for example, has criteria for predicting a heat index, like we were talking about, is important because it, it reflects both heat temperature as well as humidity. And if they have a heat index of over 35 degrees, for example, centigrade for over two days, that alerts their system. So already, for example, New York has had five or six alert systems. And when their system is what we call alerting individuals. It alerts via the radio, it alerts via cell phones, but in addition, it alerts hospitals. And why is that important? 
because hospitals will see more emergency department visits during heat waves and they have to get ready. And especially the homeless, especially people living in areas where they don't have good access to healthcare, there needs to be programs in public health departments and transportation to transport people that otherwise are not living in air conditioning or cool places and that they're transported to hospitals. So having these windows of a health monitoring system on the public health level of two days or more of a heat wave, 35 degrees centigrade or more, is actually really helpful. And New York City has done a great job alerting their citizens as well as alerting their hospitals to be ready for this. For example, a heat wave occurred in the Northwest uh, where the hospitals were not ready and they had a 69 times increase to the emergency rooms and they were not ready, unfortunately. And so a lot of people died because they couldn't get rehydrated fast enough or couldn't get cooled fast enough. And we expect this type of event to occur many times now, every five to 10 years. It's not a rare event anymore. So having our public health systems, having our hospitals ready is important and having this monitored carefully and letting citizens as well as institutions know will help us. Dr. Kari Nadeau, thank you so very much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Thank you. You've been listening to Dr. Kari Nadeau. She's the Interim Director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment, John Rock Professor of Climate and Population Studies, and Chair of the Department of Environmental Health at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. We turn now to Dr. Scott Hall. He is Senior Manager of Pharmacy Clinical Practice at the Mayo Clinic Health System in the Wisconsin region. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Scott Hall. Hi, thanks for having me today. Well, we're delighted to have you, Dr. Hall. And I guess the first question is how medications can affect our body's response to heat. And I'm thinking about medications that may not be obvious always for for people. They may not be warned when the doctor prescribes them in the middle of the winter time for their blood pressure or their heart rate or some other aspect of their physiology. I mean, who thinks about August uh, with 100 degree temperatures out there? So give us some sense of the medications that might make us susceptible to heat problems. Sure. That's Definitely something that that should be considered when when thinking about your medications. There's there's a couple different ways that medicines can affect how our bodies react to heat. You know, some medications may make it more difficult for a person to stay hydrated. So if they're on a medication like that's called a diuretic or a water pill, something that that makes their body get rid of extra water, um, usually through more frequent urination, um, that can make it difficult for a person to stay hydrated. There are some other medications that can cause our bodies to sweat more. Well, um, before, some- we, before we even go that far, 
Terry, you have a question about diuretics. Right. I was going to say, these are very common blood pressure pills. Can you give us a couple of examples? Sure. So let me ask, do you, when I answer that one, do you guys prefer, does your audience prefer like generic names or brand names? Well, I, you know, I think these days, almost all of these drugs are being dispensed generically. So let's start with the generic names, and then we'll also mention that there are a lot of combinations. So I suspect you're going to mention hydrochlorothiazide, which is abbreviated how? Uh, HCTZ. Right. So, I mean, I think tens of millions of people are taking this water pill for their blood pressure management. Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, hydrochlorothiazide is one of the, the more common ones. Another one people might be taking is furosemide. Um, another one is torsemide, um, you know, with either for blood pressure or if they have, uh, you know, a condition like congestive heart failure. And here's the, here's the problem. A lot of people are tra- taking other medications like amlodipine or lisinopril, but they have with them HCTZ. And so people may not even realize that they're, you're getting a diuretic along with their main blood pressure pill. And what's the problem with taking a diuretic? What is it doing, especially when it's hot, like 100 degrees? Um, it's, it's making your, your, your body get rid of extra water. And so you may uh, wind up um, become, you may be at risk for being dehydrated more easily than, than somebody who is not taking a medication like that. So you are moving on to drugs that affect our ability to sweat. Yes. So um, there are other medications that affect our ability to sweat. Some um, medications can make you sweat more. Um, and those could be, most commonly those medications would be some antidepressants. So um, think of things like bupropion or paroxetine, um, those kinds of medications. And then there are some other medications that might decrease your ability to sweat and make you sweat less. Um, And so some medications like that, that could be an antihistamine, most commonly diphenhydramine um, for seasonal allergies, but, you know, some also some medications to treat different psychiatric conditions um, can also, you know, decrease the body's ability to, to sweat as well as it, as it might have been able to. And let's hit the pause button there for just a sec, because you mentioned diphenhydramine, and a lot of people may only recognize the brand name, which is? Benadryl. And it's also found in a lot of what we call the nighttime or PM pain meds. Yes, yes. Something like um, like Tylenol PM or, you know, some other different over-the-counter, you know, sleep aids do contain that active ingredient in Benadryl, which is diphenhydramine. Now, you also mentioned antidepressants, and these are often considered those uh, tricyclic antidepressants. So we're talking about drugs such as? Um, something like uh, like amitriptyline would be a common um, tricyclic antidepressant that, that a, a person might be taking. And, not necess- and that one not necessarily always for depression as well. You know, some of those tricyclic medications can be used for, for other things to either help people sleep or, you know, other, other conditions that a, a doctor might think they need them for. That would be a situation in which a doctor might be prescribing the drug, what we call off-label. Yes. Okay. 
What about antipsychotic medications, drugs like Geodon, for example? Yeah, so so antipsychotic medications like Geodon or or Zyprexa could have the you know an, an anticholinergic side effect. You know, the anticholinergics tend to dry you out, and so definitely could have uh, an impact on uh, a, a person's ability to sweat as as effectively as they would be if they weren't taking that medication. Dr. Hall, I wonder if you have advice for our listeners how to find out if one of your regular medications is potentially putting them at higher risk for heat problems. Absolutely. I think I think one of the, the easiest things that anybody could do to to find out if their medication is to put them at risk is to talk to their pharmacist um, or their or their doctor um, or or whichever healthcare provider you know prescribe that medication to them and, and ask if that's a possibility. Um, normally, also when patients get prescriptions, it comes with a little pamphlet about information, and, and there's definitely um, a lot of information included in there. But if taking a, a look at some of those patient guides can provide some information on what some of the possible side effects might be. Um, but but definitely having that discussion with um, a pharmacist or other healthcare provider can give you the, the really specific information on that medication and, you know, other health conditions or other medications you might have that could, could interact or potentially um, put you at increased risk. So what would be the right question to ask your pharmacist or your prescriber uh, so that you could be alert to avoid complications from your medication if it's too hot? I think, you know, I think, and when, when discussing with a pharmacist, I think asking, um, you know, could, could my medication or my medications put me at um, a risk of, of not tolerating the, the hot temperature as well as somebody who is not taking it. Let me ask you another quick question about, in this case, the sun. Because there are some medications that we would call phototoxic that would make people more vulnerable to a sunburn. Uh, you know, sometimes the pharmacist will put something on the label, but sometimes people ignore that. So what should they be aware of? Which, which medications might cause them to have an increased burn? Sure. There are, there are a couple different groups of medications that can put you at, at increased risk for what you, you call like a photosensitivity uh, or increased risk of, of developing a sunburn. And so um, many of those common medications are actually antibiotics. And so um, something like, like Bactrim is a common one um, that a person might be prescribed. Doxycycline is, is another one. Um, and that, and, you know, but really with many antibiotics, there is a chance of photosensitivity. Um, another group of medications might be um, medications that are used to treat, um, treat acne. So um, something like isotretinoin would be, would be one of those medications. Dr. Hall, we've been asking you about how medicines affect our ability to respond to sunshine and heat. What about the effects of heat on medicines themselves? Are there medicines that are susceptible to 
alteration if they're exposed to heat. Ab- absolutely. You know, medications are, are definitely sensitive to, to changes in temperature and, and whether medications are, are kept too cold or too hot. Um, that can, can change how stable that medicine molecule is and, and can, can break it down. Um, one of the, the medications that definitely comes to mind that would be of, of high concern in the heat would be something like insulin, which is, which is very susceptible to temperatures and making sure that, you know, if, if you're taking a medication like insulin, that you're, you're not leaving it in the car um, you know, in a, in a hot day, in a hot parking lot, um, or really, you know, any of your medications for, you know. So, so don't pick it up from the drugstore first and then run into the grocery store for a little shopping. Yeah, absolutely. Um, definitely consider making, you know, the stops at the pharmacy your last stop on your way home. Dr. Scott Hall, thank you so much for talking with us on the People's Pharmacy today. Thank you again for having me. You've been listening to Dr. Scott Hall. He's Senior Manager of the Pharmacy Clinical Practice at the Mayo Clinic Health System. And I said earlier that people taking amlodipine or lisinopril or perhaps even losartan might get into trouble because there's hydrochlorothiazide. But, of course, that's not true. You can also get amlodipine, losartan, lots of blood pressure pills without it if it says HCT or HCTZ after the name. That's when it has the diuretic included. We spoke earlier with Dr. Kari Nadeau, Interim Director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment, John Rock, Professor of Climate and Population Studies, and Chair of the Department of Environmental Health at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Alwardarski engineered. Dave Graydon edits our interviews. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements, concentrated cocoflavanols for cognitive and cardiovascular support. More information at cocovia.com. Today's show is number 1,348. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments about today's interview. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about important health stories. When you subscribe, you also have regular access to our weekly podcast. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, 
please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.